Welcome to Weird Sequence, Season 1, Sequence 12, The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. Beware spoilers and trigger warnings for the following. Racism, murder, supernatural murder, human sacrifice, violence, and yet more racism, because damn it, Howard, just damn it. Hello, so. and welcome to the Christmas episode of Weird Sequence. And in keeping with the season, the spirit of the season, you know, in keeping with the, the proud traditions of this time of year, we have we've picked it a picked a classic, classic Christmas favorite, The Call of Cthulhu. That's right. Christmas is for Cthulhu. Everybody. You have no shame, you know that. I know. It's funny because the Call of Cthulhu actually takes place mostly in March, so does it? You know, it does. Yeah. I do not remember it bringing that up at all. Uh, well, there's some dates. Uh, <laughs> from February twenty eighth to April second, there yeah. was the dream, the dream sequence. So. Right. But yes, Merry Christmas, everyone! Happy Hanukkah! Happy Kwanzaa! Happy festivals. Bad tidings we bring yeah. to you and your scaly hell demon. Eo Saturnalia. Uh, Saturnalia is God, just before Christmas, isn't it? God Yule. Um, yeah. Are you, are, you just, is, are you just going through I'm your just huge listing off all the holidays. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Irish, it's Nolag. <laughs> no, keep going. What, 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 what other ones you got here? Um... I think that's all of them. Uh, Joyeux Noël. That's they can do that. The the one I always liked was the fact that you know the the, the sort of Anglo-centric thing is hey we give presents on uh, you know twenty fourth of December, um, and that's as far as I can tell only really true in English speaking countries, as every right. other European country does it on a completely different day. Anywhere from like the sixth of December or the start of December all the way through to early January. Yeah, There's but we no English speakers, we're we are uh, categorically correct. So there's that. Yes, we English speakers are categorically correct. Yes, in every way, especially you know, in grammar. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm giving you crap for um, picking the Call of Cthulhu. I mean, the other option was uh, the Hellbound Heart. <laughs> so yeah. But, you know, next Christmas we need to do like a Christmas carol or something that's actually Christmas. That's not terrible. There's a there's a, a big tradition of of British uh, Christmas ghost stories that we can go through. It'll mm. last us years. And this year, we have Cthulhu. Right, because nothing says Yuletide joy like Cthulhu Fatagan. If you, it, it's it's actually it's actually an, an appropriate um, an appropriate alternative to Merry Christmas if you don't want to say Merry Christmas, but you also don't want to anger conservatives by saying Happy Holidays. Give them a Cthulhu Fatagan and see what they do. Fenugli Maguanaf Cthulhu Rileth Wagnaglithi Fatag. Right. I I I'm I'm going to do that. I'm going to go down to Publix. I'm going mm-hmm. to buy my groceries, and if somebody wishes me a Merry Christmas, I'm going to reel that monstrosity off. Yeah, Cthulhu Matagan. 
And then and then presumably get chased straight through Georgia as a Satanist. But you know, it'll be worth it. The running will be good exercise. It will. And you can stop at one of the many quality sex shops in Georgia on the way. Oh god, that stretch to Atlanta is so rough. Yes. It's so strippers rough. and sex shops. It's like it's like the billboards are like strippers, sex shops, and Jesus. And and there's that's, a cadence. The, yes. There's a weird cadence to it. And it's it's like it's like they're a repeating pattern. So it's like strippers, sex shop, Jesus. And it Ooh. it kind of hits every what, fifty miles or so? Oh, I'd say there's there's I mean they cycle through. It's probably every every twenty or thirty miles. <laughs> and it's it's so weird. It's just it's just uh, from our perspective, what four to six hours of strippers, truckers welcome, sex right. shop, truckers welcome, right. Jesus, truckers. You're not probably welcome. not welcome. Right. <laughs> I, I always liked when so I I worked uh, I worked as a, an over the road truck driver for several years and um, one thing that always amused me was seeing um, like driving past a, a strip joint on the highway and there being a bunch of semi trucks down there and half of them have big Jesus fish painted on them and <laughs> like Jesus saves on the bumper and stuff. Yeah, it's um. It just amused me. They're just there for food. Exactly. It's like Cafe Risqué. Yeah. <laughs> Which I found out that but, s- someone was telling me that they had an, an OAP Sunday morning special on like their food at that club. And apparently I've it is true. The, the and apparently there are good. elderly couples that wander into the strip club on a Sunday morning to get like cheap chicken fry and, you know, eggs and bacon. I mean, and- I mean... It's in it's in a town that would suggest that the food there is probably pretty good. There, there are some places nearby that actually serve decent food. I, I just I, I maybe they're really cheap. I don't I don't know. Well, there's the boobs too, you know. I I don't know if if Ma and Pa Scroggins are really going to be there for the boobs. Oh, you never know. I mean, the, the Ma and Pa Scroggins these days were like children of the '60s, so that is true. Who knows? That is very true. Anyway, um, <laughs> what we do now. What is not Cthulhu. horrifying, like the billboards of Georgia, is the Call of Cthulhu. Actually, it <laughs> is quite horrifying. It has a strange kind of build-up. This one. It does. This uh, this story has a great um, nested structure, and by the time you're into the story, you're like, you're like, it's like Inception. You're like in a story within a story within a story within a story, right? And you yourself are part of the story because you're reading it. Well, let, let's let, let's get into the summary. So, um, if you haven't read Call of Cthulhu, um, go read it. Call of Cthulhu is is um, basically it's a, a narrative by someone who has inherited a bunch of papers from his uncle, who is a professor of languages who died under somewhat suspicious circumstances relatively recently. He starts to go through these papers of collected stories that his great-uncle had acquired, all relating to a mysterious cult, sort of congregate around this this worship of this creature called Cthulhu. And the story is in three parts. 
the first part talking about the uh, persistent nightmares of an artist. The second part, um, an investigation by a police officer in New Orleans into... Um, uh, he, he describes it as a voodoo cult they found out in the marshes. And the third part, the account of a Nor- uh, Norwegian? Norwegian sailor yes. who finds a mysterious island in the middle of the Pacific and actually releases Cthulhu. Right. Um, the first each- two parts are, are, are recountings by the person who's telling the story. And the third one is his is a recounting of like his secondhand knowledge in that part. In the other two parts, he's like, yeah. Right. And then the last part is his own handwritten, like, this thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the second part is, um, it's it's the story being told by the inspector who found this, this, this cult, broke it up with a bunch of his fellow police officers, and is trying to get information from, you know, you know sort of... Um, it's like the international... Uh, antiquities yeah, committee or something. antiquities. I was, I was like, I'm not anthropologist. They weren't anthropologists. Um, because he's think, got this, I think this the word strange that he stone. Uses is like, sorry, the American Archaeological Society. I'm reading it right here. The early experience experience had come in 1908, 17 years before, when the American Archaeological Society held its annual meeting in St. Louis. Professor Angel, as befitted one of his authority and attainments, had had, had a prominent part in all the deliberations. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna read the book and like take notes and references, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, if you cross reference this with no, I'm kidding, I didn't do that. No. Um, okay. So uh, either way, so he, he basically this this police officer has come with this this strange statue of unidentifiable stone, and basically gone to this convention and gone. What is this thing? Who are these people? What are they doing? Um, and then, yeah, the third chapter, which is the handwritten account from a Norwegian sailor who literally crashes into Ryleth in the middle of the Pacific. The oh. the the story then ends with um, the narrator. So this is Francis Wayland Thurston acknowledging that. You know, this is the the sort of sum total of notes that he has or he's found. Um, He also now realizes he knows too much about the cult. And like everyone else who's been exposed, he's probably going to get murdered. After being jostled by a nautical looking Negro. That's how his uncle died. Right. Which, oh boy, we'll get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Although so, I will say this is this is not the this, this story is not the most racist story or Lovecraft ever. It, it is so not. It is. Well, it's pretty light for him. And I think I said I've said this a couple of times. I am I am I can be shockingly oblivious sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I read um, uh, the Shadow of Rinsmouth, and I think mm-hmm. I got about a third or third of the way into that, and it, it is a good story. Um, I, I enjoyed the story, but I got about a third of the way into it, and I'm like. This isn't about fish people, is it? <laughs> I need some context on this. Google, Google, Google. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think every every murderer, every um, undesirable, every degenerate, every cult member, um, be they sort of 
aggressive sailors floating around in the middle of the Pacific or whether they are actually committing human sacrifice in the middle of the, the swamps. They are all non-white or mixed race. Ooh. And it's just like... Come on, Howard. It's, come it's on. icky. It's icky for the yeah. early 20th century. It's just like, come on. Yeah. That's the thing. Even Even for his time, his views were like, really? Come on. Yeah, which so, and that's something that's something you have to be aware of when you're reading Lovecraft is that his he he was very racist and he was afraid of everything and everybody that wasn't a um, a Anglo white person. Well, if the, yeah, if you weren't so. a wasp, basically in, in sort of the American usage, um, right? Or a man, is man part of that too? Women too. He didn't, he didn't care for women. Did he not? No, I mean, well... Yeah, Actually, is, thinking I mean, about it, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of, of many of his stories that have female characters in them. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, no, that's probably no. a good observation. Um, I mean, he was married He was married once or twice, I think. So it's not like... I thought he was married I mean, there's once. always been rumors... There's always been rumors about whether he was gay or not, and that's something we'll never know, because you know, he's not alive to tell us, but... Um, he did die his, shockingly his... early and shockingly badly um, for someone who yes. spent their entire life writing um, weird stories uh, mm. in that kind of like, well, you know, this is weird fiction because I don't, I don't know if you would classify most of his output as truly horror, to be honest. No, no um, it's, it's, I mean, he was like the, the, the most prominent of the weird fiction authors in the early 20th century. Yeah. Uh, um, he died of tuberculosis. I believe so, yes. Or maybe, uh, let me look it up so I don't. I, I'm done. So our one, our one listener doesn't, uh, doesn't write in and say you guys. Oh, suck. that guy's the worst. Yeah. Um, due to his fear of doctors, he really was terrified of everything. Yes. Ah, uh, cancer of the small intestine. Wonderful. Wow, that's a nasty one. Uh, he yeah. remained hospitalized until he died. He lived in constant constant pain until his death a month later. Oh God, karma! His so, mother yeah. died of tuberculosis. Um, I didn't realize actually until I was I was doing some background read on this how many how many people he was contemporary with. Um, yeah, it was a it was a rocking time then. Oh God, yeah. I mean, Heming uh, you Hemingway. Know, Hemingway yeah. was at his height. Well. Well, uh, I think right? he was a correspondent of uh, the guy who um, created Tarzan. Oh, no, yeah. not Tarzan. Uh, Conan. Sorry, Conan. Yeah, they were they were correspondents. What's his mm -hmm. name now? Howard. Um, yeah, that guy. <laughs> I almost said Howard Hughes, but that's a different no, not Howard Hughes. Uh, let's see. Um, it was here somewhere. Robert E. Howard. Ah, uh, Howard was somewhere in there. Yeah, no, he 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 had some very interesting. He he was in a very interesting place, mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of the output he had and when it was coming out. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, he had some very uh, very particular ideas. Um, yeah, the worst one, the worst one I can think of that I've read, the worst racist story that I've ever that he did, is either like the horror of Red Hook, or. Um, or um, the the account of Arthur German. 
I don't think I'm it's familiar the one with where the guy those. finds out that his ancestors were mating with monkeys or chimpanzees or something. Ooh, yeah, that's um, yeah. So yeah, definitely some themes in here that would not survive in a modern era. No. Um. Like not not at all. I mean, um. I, I, I think have... there were there was I think there were some some unpublished stories that um, he sent to Strange Tales and they got kicked back with like, yeah, no, we're not going to publish that <laughs> because of because of those kind of themes. So um, so Call of Cthulhu is is light as far as that goes, but it's still something to be aware of. Yeah, and uh, to put to put that in context, uh, you know, we, we do have a mutual friend who will not read any Lovecraft because of that. And that's fine. That's yeah. that's their right. And that, that's fine. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue that. Yeah. Um, Lovecraft is not for everybody. Part part of the reason that she'd looked into that in the first place was because I warned her of that ahead of time. Hmm. And um, I think she did some research and the, the answer was, oh hell no. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean he was a he had some demonstrable views about a lot of different people and and that is uh, that is something you know. If you're unable to separate an artist from their art, then um, mm-hmm. or from their oh, yeah, personal views not, or whatever, yeah, this is not the uh, not the place for you to be. Right. Anyway, so yeah, Lovecraft was terrible. You didn't. You yes. did not come here. You did not come and listen to this because you wanted to hear about how awful Lovecraft was. You came here because. You wanted to talk about big tentacle monsters in a right. non-hente way. Yes. <laughs> that is something that Lovecraft would absolutely not support. Oh, gosh. That seems reasonable and fair, actually. I'm going to let him have that one. Yeah. So, um, I mean, let's, let's break down the, the, the individual stories in here, because it, it's really... It, it's doing that kind of iRobot thing, where it's, it's really a collection of short stories held together with a loose narrative. Right. And there's a term for that that I can't think of off the top of my head, but... Nested... Um, well, it's called a nested story structure. Is it? It's a story within a story within a story. Yeah. So, let, let's talk about these, these three stories. So, um, you know, starting off, you have the horror in clay. Right. So, so right off the bat, the first paragraph, I think... I mean, it's, it's one of Lovecraft's more quoted and memorable paragraphs because it kind of encapsulates his entire sense of what horror is and i'm just going to read it the most merciful thing in the world i think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents we live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity and it was not meant that we should voyage far the sciences each straining in its own direction have hitherto harmed us little but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. So that kind of, it, it kind of is his whole shtick. Like that... We, we as humans think that we are significant and we are, we are pressing against the boundaries of knowledge and enlightenment when really the reality is that we are so insignificant and or laughably 
like tiny that if we ever figure out exactly how insignificant and tiny we are that revelation will is horrifying it will literally break your mind right it's like the the total perspective vortex in in uh, the hitchhiker's guide <laughs> to the universe yes Yes. No. It's um, the, the the idea is that you know there there are things that are that have been will always be that have spread and existed between worlds far longer than we have numbers to express, mm-hmm. and the idea that we we could even attempt to stand up to some of this is hysterical. Right. It, it's literally just a cosmic joke. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the strengths of Lovecraft's style is that these, you know, this is not a band of unruly but lovable teenagers that are going to go out into the woods and get naked and drink beer and then you find yourself rooting for the monster, you know. (laughs) This is, you know, Lovecraft's protagonists are like professors and police officers and, you know, private investigators and people who are competent professionals who do the things that you yourself might do in this situation, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't do any good because what they're fighting against is so far above humanity that it doesn't matter. And this this sets up a very common um, idea in a a lot of uh, Lovecraft stories, which is you have somebody goes into a situation, and whoever that person is, that narrator, is almost never the the main character of the story. Right. They, They go into that situation, they will meet somebody there who's experiencing something bad or has experienced something bad they will relate what is happening in great story in great detail mm-hmm. it may even kill them right um is it whisper in the dark where the, the guy ends up as a meat puppet uh, whisper whisper in the dark has the yeah he's a brain in a jar yeah that's it with the mm. that's a migu yeah yeah um I, and then whatever the, whoever that narrator is will flee not because not not even necessarily always because they're scared though they are almost always scared to death mm-hmm. there's just nothing else to be done right. um you know the mountains of madness they they come back from discovering the ruins of this this antarctic city and the guy just doesn't tell anybody he's like oh expedition went wrong everybody died whoop what do you do and keeps it to himself until they start to plan another expedition. It's like, look, look, hang on. Let me tell you in tiny right. detail everything that happened to me and the people out there. Right. And then don't although, do this, okay? Although I don't, think, I don't think that he does a very good job because after his account, I'm like, let's go. Let's go figure it out. That sounds amazing. Though the... the, uh, the well, the, 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 the bit that always gets me with that is he, he kind of flees as the... Um, oh... What is it? The the gelatinous stuff that lives underground. The the Shoggoth. Shoggoth. As the Shoggoth kind of comes up, he flees, and it's not ever really made clear how he gets away. We're, right. Well. Well. And that's not even that's not even the crowning horror of that story. Like as they're flying away, his partner, like he's flying the plane, and his partner looks back at the city and sees something mm-hmm. that's never described, and that something drives him insane like immediately yes. and so like 
those themes are all like in this first paragraph of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. This is this is his like this is his thesis statement right yeah. here. And I I know um, I'm I'm just looking at something on Wikipedia. I know there's a note here. It's like you know the initial criticism was it's a, it's an okay story whatever. This does have a lot of how to explain it. It's kind of like a master cut. It has a lot of the better tropes and ideas he has in a lot of his other mm-hmm. stories um, yeah. polished. So it's not that this story does anything particularly new or interesting compared to some of his other other work. It's just that it does it a little bit better. better. This is the best example of how this, this trope plays out or how this idea plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. So, yeah, yep. no, here, the, the first story, so the horroring clay, this is um, an artist who is suffering from, you know, appalling, debilitating um, nightmares and, and visions, yeah. and it's seeping he, into his art, which, again, is another common idea, you know, that somehow art is, is influenced by um, these sort of, how do you even describe it, these sort of, it's like... like it's like the collective unconscious or the like the zeitgeist okay yeah like artist 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 brains are somehow different and they're tapping into some primal instinctive um, degeneracy that like if it's not if it's not kept in check by proper breeding and proper education <laughs> it just turns into like you know modern art. Yes, in, in essence, yes. Which Lovecraft hated modern art, so shocker. Um, yeah, I know. So I, um, yeah, and it, it it does come up a couple of times um, in in various places where you know you have you have someone who makes music or dances or paints, and it's oh, just the like, music. The music of Eric Zahn is a great one. That is a great one. Um, that's a really weird one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's it, it's just like oh yes, I'm a out to play in a creature and hmm, I need to destroy humanity and take over the world. How will I do it? Well, I'm going to just project ideas into that artist's brain. Right. <laughs> so they're often well, you know, it's just this... it's just as just as plausible as like oh, I'm an hi- I'm a highly advanced alien species and I want to study humans, so I'm going to go to Podunk, Nebraska and take the most unreliable human I can find. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, it depends how you look at it. If you want to witness that nobody will believe that they got abducted by aliens... Right, that's true. Podunk, Nebraska is perfect. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Nebraska. Nebraska's a great state. Um, if you say so. Lots of corn. So, uh, so the the artist in question brings um, brings this bar relief that he made um, to the professor and mm-hmm. says, "Can you tell me about this?" And being a professor of antiquities, he looks at the at the sculpture and says, um, "So this is not old. This is like." Like the clay is wet. <laughs> what do you you know? What do you try to pull on me? And, and and Wilcox says, says yes, I made it last night. And like he's like his the dialogue in the story is funny sometimes. It's like it is new indeed for I made it last night in a dream of strange cities and the dreams are older than brooding tear. Like what what? Well, it, it it's kind of interesting because 
he's not trying to pretend this is antique or, you know, he's, he's just, he's not even like, oh, I'm channeling these great thoughts. It's like, I keep building these things. And I think that the things I'm building are referencing things that are stupidly old. Got right. any input on that? Mm. And the the bar relief is in the box that the that Francis mm-hmm. Waylon Thurston is looking through, and it's like a, a, a you know it's like a relief sculpture of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. The first description you get of Cthulhu is um, is pretty interesting it's like where is it it says something about like if i say that i got simultaneous visions of a a human an octopus and a dragon oh here we go oh sorry it's actually here sorry which the narrator describes my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus a dragon and a human caricature a pulpy tentacled head surmounting a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings and there's actually, there's actually a Lovecraft himself drew a picture of Cthulhu that you can find online. He drew it by hand. Yeah. Um, and it is a little bit different than um, than your typical modern like depiction of Cthulhu, but oh, it's it's not it's not too far off. I don't I don't think the eyes are different mostly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, so it, it's it's an interesting precursor because again, you you have a you have an artist being used as sort of a herald. He shows up. He's talking about this crazy monster. This professor has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. So he moves on. Um, I, I think does. Does something bad happen to the artist? I'm I'm actually blanking on the end. Right, he, he goes in. He goes himself? into. No, no, no. He goes into like a. He goes into like a week long kind of coma, like fever. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And and then um, and then he comes out of it, and then it's gone. Like he doesn't remember anything. Mm-hmm. But um, Professor Angel had set up a like a clipping service to start taking like. Um, like, you know, weird anomalous things that happened. And and he also reached out to a bunch of people that he knew to like for them to record their dreams and like um, architects and artists and, and writers had these weird, crazy dreams that like if they had all like gotten together and compared notes, it would be like, what the heck? But Right. So you have... Um these weird sort of occurrences happening all over. Um, and did they, did they have a lot of commonality? Yeah, they yeah, were, they, they, um, they all had like cyclopean, uh, landscapes and weird things. And, and actually, you know, some of the stuff he talks about, like all these crazy things that are happening in the spring of 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those things actually happened. Like, I, I heard an interview with a, a guy who um, who made a like a Call of Cthulhu silent film in like 2002, and he said that the the earthquake that happened in in New England in 1925 actually happened. And, oh, how weird! Um, and so he was thinking about like <clears throat> putting in the movie like based on real events. <laughs> hmm. 
So, I mean, Lovecraft was going through newspapers and seeing all these these weird things going on, and that influenced, you know, what he was writing about. Well, he, he, he did that a lot. Um, when he introduces the Necronomicon, um, it's described along with a, a bunch of actual real books. Right. Um, which is part of the reason people tend to think, oh, well, it's just some obscure thing that actually exists. No, he just threw a fake book in with real books because books were kind of his thing. He he knew about rare books and, and what would be, you know, suitably similar and rare to try and obtain. So Yeah, well, even, even in The Call of Cthulhu, like, he lists off some books like W. Scott Elliott's Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria. That's a, that's a real book. And Miss Murray's Witch, Witch Cult in Western Europe. Like, that's a real book as well. Those books, mm-hmm. like influenced the the like um the spiritualism craze in the late 1800s yeah um so yeah so he throws the necronomicon in with a list of of real actual books and i mean it's a great you know if you're if you're a writer yourself you can use that if you're writing like you know contemporary fantasy or or Mm -hmm. something like that like you can give your story more realism by by putting in actual things with your your fictional right. things so talking about actual things um you know we have have artists heralding the the, the sort of the, the coming of this weird creature we have all these artists and groups going crazy um that leads us into the second part of the story so this yeah. is the the tale of inspector lagrasse and this happened before the the previous before right. chapter one so this is this is a story about a story being related by a professor uh, uh, by a detective sorry mm-hmm. from um new orleans yeah and he he has showed up at a meeting of the american archaeology society and he's saying okay you guys you you deal with old stuff all the time does this look like anything and he pulls out a what he believes to be a a fetish kind of statue taken from a voodoo cult. Mm-hmm. Um, he has no idea what this thing is. It it it's completely, you know, it's sort of his wit's end. Mm-hmm. Um, the professor in this recognizes it as something similar to one of the statues that Wilcox was making, sort of during his delirium and his his waking nightmares. Oh no! Actually, I it wasn't like that because this happened before. This happened before Wilcox. Oh, okay. This is, so uh, it, it, so yeah, okay. it was, but there was a professor there who recognized it, and it was uh, William Channing Webb from Princeton, and he recognized it as being similar to es- like uh, a, a well. death cult in Greenland or something. Yeah, a tribe of a singular tribe of degenerate Eskimos. Yeah, ouch. God damn it, like Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, Which, again, the opening to this section, when Legras is actually talking about going and breaking up the cult, um, again, they are not complimentary descriptions of the people involved with this cult. No. Yeah, it doesn't end with degenerate Eskimos either. It goes on, whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. And then he put on a pith helmet and kissed his picture of the queen. Um, right, exactly. Just, this is this is the adventures of that guy from the monkey's paw. Oh my god! 
Ah, <laughs> uh, colonial, colonialism at its finest. Um, yes. Which 1925 would be sort of, well, not really. We're still in the, the dying throes of that, I guess, at that point. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, so the, the, the story that's been related is a, a group of police officers are dispatched to a disturbance in a swamp outside of New Orleans. New Orleans. It was not a New Orleans Saints tailgate party. It was not a tailgate party. It was also not a bunch of teenagers getting naked in the woods after the bunch of beer. No. No. They 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 were naked. They were naked. Yes. And cannibalistic. <laughs> yes. And They're dancing we... around uh dancing around a pillar in the middle of the swamp with the uh the Cthulhu statue on the top, and there's dead people around. And mm-hmm. Weird and noises coming out of the swamp behind I, I them. I don't know if they discuss how many police officers, but Legrasse is leading a group of, a, a basically a group of police officers in to break up this um, ritual, mm-hmm. which they, they'd say is about 100 men, um, you know, cavorting and dancing around five dead victims around this this statue and they go in there's a gun battle there's fighting people die on both sides they they capture you know 47 people they arrest they kill five participants mm-hmm. and they interrogate them and as they interrogate them they just learn more and more confusing things about oh this is a cult that's older than time this is a cult that can never die you know we yeah. have this saying, you know, the uh, Cthulhu Ryleth, blah, 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 Fatag, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Yeah, which is from a, a dead language they no longer remember. Uh, um, but actually, the, the in the switching back to the archaeological meeting, the, um, the, the, uh, the professor talks about the, the, well, the, they talk about that phrase, and then um, Professor Webb said that he knew he knew basically what that meant because it was similar to what the the tribe in Greenland would say mm-hmm. and what it means is in his house at Rillier dead Cthulhu waits dreaming yeah which is super creepy yeah um well and, and the whole thing is i mean you know the one of the cultists that they they that will actually talk to them about what they were doing there mm-hmm. um Quotes the Necronomicon at them. That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. And that's another great line of, of Lovecraft. Right. Which, you know, it, 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 as you've come to find out, this is because to, to sort of escape, um, because the, the great old ones are made of the stuff of stars, right? Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if they ever explain what that means exactly, but basically they're bound to... Plasma? Ah, really hot fire. <laughs> right. Um, which, basically, when certain star alignments are in phase or not, depends on whether they're even alive or dead. Mm-hmm. So rather than sort of die, Cthulhu kind of basically sort he of hibernates. cursed them to hibernate mm-hmm. until the stars were back in the correct alignment. So, yeah, you have creatures here that can be dead for so long that even their death will die and they'll come back to life. Mm-hmm. 
they are not playing a human game. <laughs> no. They are not interested in what you're doing. There, no. There's a there's a whole thing going on there which is deep and vast and, and, and frankly meant to be hard to process. Right. Um, you know, oh, we, we won't be alive for X, X untold thousand years. That's somewhat inconvenient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's not even um, it's just a matter of fact to them. That's just how they are. Yep, I think it talks about it a little bit in the story, but this is something that I've always thought about, especially when I when I try and write this kind of stuff in my own stories. Like, why would someone want to wake up Cthulhu? Well, and that that's a good question, and and that 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 will sort of take us nicely into the the, the third part of this. Um, although I did, I did want to note, I don't quite know how, off the top of my head here, I don't quite remember how this story came into the possession of the, the great uncle. Was it related to him? Or was it something he witnessed? I, the, I don't quite recall. The third story? The second story. The second story. He was, he was at the archaeological meeting where Inspector okay. Grass gave his account. Yeah. No, the, the third story... Um, is not the uncles. The third not the story. Uncles. The third is story is the, one he he. Uh, I believe the the great nephew acquired. Yeah, by chance <clears throat> he by was chance. helping. He was helping a friend to wrap up um, artifacts, and one of the newspapers they were using to wrap the artifact up in um, happened to have a story about this Norwegian sailor, and mm-hmm. then he went and did some research, and that's that's something that like is one part that that shows just like the the futility of what these people are are dealing with is that like you know when this happens like like um thurston as far as he's concerned like this story is done like his uncle had some weird accounts that he he read about but that's like you know okay that's that's weird but that's fine now suddenly he he sees this weird account like just by chance looking at a random newspaper that, mm. you know, gets him back into it. And this this is also another story where, um, for as much as this is the part where, where uh, Francis kind of takes some involvement in the story, this still isn't happening to him. Yeah, he tracks down the, the widow. Doesn't... The widow, uh, uh, with some kind of cajoling, gives him this document. Because cause the sailor is dead. Right. Yeah. And the document is what tells the story. It's not. Right. It's not something that's happening actively to Thurston. Right. At, at no point in this story is Thurston in any actual danger or peril, aside from the fact that everybody else who has played a role in this story, except for Inspector Legrasse, we don't know what happened to him, but right. every other person has died under mysterious circumstances. Right. Um, right. So. Thurston gets this story, and I think this tends to be the part of this story that people... I don't think people really think about the first part of this this story when they, they think of Call of Cthulhu. I think they kind of think of part of the second chapter and then the third chapter as the Call no, of Cthulhu. Yeah, this is this where um, all the action happens. Right, and this, this is the payoff. This is where all the, all the action happens. And this relates a story of a Norwegian sailor, Gustav Johnson... Uh, who's aboard uh, a schooner called Emma, 
which we're sending from New Zealand. Um, yeah, from Auckland. And as it's sailing along, it hits, it bumps into a heavily armed yacht and gets attacked. So, you know, they, they get into a pitched battle. They manage to kill everybody on board the, the attacking vessel. But they lose. And the guys ship. on the attacking vessel are like crazed. They're like crazy. He says I, that killing I, them, killing them, didn't feel like murder because they were so inhuman. Right. And I, I, I have the description here, and I'm not going to read it. <laughs> mm. But paraphrasing somewhat, it is they are described as, you know, uh, a non-standard and evil-looking crew of. Migrant Pacific workers and mixed race people. I think it's probably the the the, the cleanest way I can describe that. Um, yeah, they're not white men. They're not white people again, right? Because, god damn it, Lovecraft! Come on, Howard. Jeez, you're getting coal, Howard. Yeah, you, you realize this? Totally. You're getting coal. Cthulhu. Cthulhu only gives slimy coal. You're getting slimy coal from Cthulhu. Because you couldn't be a good boy. And it smells... The slimy Cthulhu coal smells like a cloven sunfish. It has the, the stench of a cloven sunfish. Oh my god. <laughs> I'd forgotten that particular description when I reread that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah. Do you um, know what that means? I don't even know. Like, sometimes sometimes Lovecraft uses analogies or, or metaphors in his in his descriptions that make sense. And other times it's like... I don't know what that means. That like a metaphor is supposed to make something more relatable, but I don't know what a cloven sunfish smells. I believe like. it's a type of fish. It um, is a fish. It's a giant fish. It's like the size of a bus. But I've never, I've never encountered a cloven sunfish to know what its stench is like. Like, I imagine it's very fishy. But mm-hmm. one, one of the two heaviest known bony fish in the world. Yeah. Um... I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's a story here from The Guardian where it's talking about they, they fished one up that weighed two tons. Yeah, they're massive so, fish. They're a massive fish, so... <clears throat> um, but, again, cloven sunfish, does that help you understand what Cthulhu smelled like? It doesn't for me. I, I, I took not good from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's like there's, a, there's another story where he describes something as... Looking into a forbidden, cursed mirror. Mm. Oh, here we oh. go. Oh, yeah, I've done that. Clo- Cloven is just the past participle of cleave. Right. It's a it's a it's a, a sunfish that's been split in cut, two. Cut in twain. Cut in twain. Yeah. Been, been rendered into halves. Yes. <laughs> um. Yes. No, it is. It is a little obtuse. I think that is a very valid criticism. Yeah. Uh, so, but either way, they they run into Rillier, and well, they, well, hang on. So they run into this boat. Uh, they right. kill the crew. So they, fight, they take yeah. possession of their boat because their own built boat is destroyed, and then they they can carry on and they bump into an uncharted island in mm-hmm. this very specific. And I, I wanted to bring this detail up because I'd read this somewhere else and I, I thought it was kind of neat. There's an uncharted island, and they give a specific um, latitude. It gives and longitude. a latitude and longitude, right? Yeah. I think you can. I think you can actually like uh, on Google Maps. You can like, you can you can Google Maps Rillier, and it brings you to that. Right, and what's interesting about that, 
that specific coordinate is if I remember correctly um, it has a specific term but but basically um, and I, I think it's still true but when when Lovecraft wrote this that is the furthest point from any inhabited point on the planet Sick. and it's slap bang in the middle of the Pacific Ocean you know like a thousand miles of open water between two tiny islands about as, as big as a small podunk town um, it, it's an impossibly remote point and I just thought that was a nice little touch um, yeah but we'll they, they, anyway, well, they the, 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 the point that you're talking about is Point Nemo that's it yeah um so yeah, if you want to find Nemo, just type Riley into Google Maps. <laughs> it's not actually right at Point Nemo; it's near it, though. Right. Actually, Riley Riley has two different locations: one given by Lovecraft and one given by August Derleth. But yeah, it's it's this this Point Nemo. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of neat. But it is it is interesting. Yeah. Anyway, get, getting back to the the, the there's story. A, so, there's a creepy a creepy uh, episode of the Magnus Archives about Point Nemo. I need to catch up on that. And the White Vault. Yeah. Super good super good podcasts. So they take this so, yacht. So they take the, the ship, they they land on a weird island. On a and completely they, uncharted they, island that shouldn't be there. They decide to do the rational thing and get out and explore. And this is Again, you know, talking about this being sort of a master cut of other Lovecraftian themes. This this is the masterclass in ancient forbidden cities. It's cyclopean. Yes. It's non-Euclidean. Cyclopean architecture. It doesn't make sense. Everything is scaled wrong. You know, the yes. materials it's made of are, are just completely alien and foreign. It's like they're not made of anything from Earth. Oh, gosh, yeah. are they made from stars? Um, but anyway, as so they, so they progress into... Ray, relay they um which i'm sure we've said like nine different times already different yes. ways say, already. It, say it however you want Rel- relay relia yeah really relia relay relia relia actually there's a someone I, there's a letter that lovecraft sent to a friend who asked how to pronounce cthulhu mm-hmm and he said of all of all the like Cthulhu words like Relier and Fatagan mm. and that that it was um it was an attempt to render um into human vocal cords words which are not meant for human vocal cords. Mm. So it's it's not meant to be easily pronounceable. <laughs> oh, it's it's like how do you pronounce Latin? Nobody knows because nobody speaks Latin. Right. Yeah. But you pronounce it Latin. Um, or is it Latin? Latin. Actually, nobody, nobody actually knows how to pronounce this. He never bothered to discuss it. So, relay, I guess. So, yeah. um, relay. Yeah. So they they get into relay, and you know, you know, going back to your point you were saying earlier about well, why would these cultists try and find an open cult? All of the cultists up to this point have been trying to stop people getting to Relay. That's true. Why would they do that? Hmm. I mean, and and this this is this is kind of the interesting point because 
you know, the, the, the yacht, the alert that attacked them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were attacking them to stop them getting to Relay. So what happens is they get to Relay, they, they, they start to explore, they accidentally open basically Cthulhu's burial chamber. Yeah. Which he can't do that. He's trapped right. in there until he's released. Mm-hmm. So he opens them, you know, ah, big giant lizard octopus horrible person monster thing my daughter described cthulhu as um an octopus butterfly of course your daughter did Mm -hmm. i think it's a fitting description (laughs) (laughs) your daughter is about the sweetest thing on this planet i know she asked me one day uh because i was wearing a cthulhu t-shirt she said she said, what does Cthulhu look like? And so I described Cthulhu with a tentacle face and wings and a big body. And she said, okay, so Cthulhu is an octopus butterfly. And I said, <laughs> yes. Yes, I, he is. I do like the fact that he's always described as having um, wings that don't, don't really work. Right. Vestigial wings. Vestigial wings. I, I always I always like that little touch. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's a tower block high monstrosity with you know tentacles as long as two humans are tall but he also has just vestigial wings just they're hanging yeah, out there it's like they're like yeah. t-rex arms what yeah. are they for nobody knows impossibly ancient made of the stuff of the stars you know bound by the brights of the universe yeah it yeah, has wings that don't work for no reason right <laughs> the um, uh so the there's some really good writing here when um when Cthulhu actually makes his appearance, mm-hmm. um, for one, well, for one thing, it, it kind of talks about like kind of what we were talking about with like these cultists. So it says uh, the thing of idols, the green sticky spawn of the stars, had awakened to claim his own. Mm-hmm. The stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After visiontillions of years, the great Cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight. Yeah, which I just, I can't even, how many zeros have been, been I can't even say it. Oh, it's 10 to the 63. 10 to the 63, that's a lot of years. <laughs> that's older than the, the, the age of the... The universe, yeah. Howard. <laughs> Hey, did we, it's did we Cthulhu, out of math man. Class? Cthulhu, Cthulhu, no, Cthulhu was around before the Big Bang. Oh, that makes sense. Maybe the Big Bang was Cthulhu sneezing. I mean, why not? I mean, in Mountains of Madness, humans were entirely a byproduct of Shoggoths. And also just like a, a mistake that they then joked about. Like, oh, look what we did. <laughs> Oops, humans. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what we, let's see what they do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, There's so some other they, great lines so the, here. The sailors... Uh, you know, uh, unleash Cthulhu. They 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 turn around to run, and we get you know another in my mind slightly better kind of handling of the the city. You know, which is now this 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 mud slick kind of bottom of the ocean, um, yeah, littered kind of nightmare environment that is non Euclidean. And one of the crew doesn't make it out because he slides into an angle that shouldn't exist and promptly disappears. And they don't know how to deal with that, and they keep yeah, running. That, that sentence, that sentence is great. It's like, um, where is it? 
Yeah, I mean, um, what, one of the things with with Lovecraft is he he suffered from night terrors, I believe, for most of his oh. life, and so he would he would use that. So when he talks about oh the the unknown dread or you know this non Euclidean that it's it's literally him trying to describe how his night terrors work. <laughs> yeah, the dreams in the witch house is all about like non not the power of non Euclidean geometry. Mm-hmm. Is that the but one with says, the, the sealed attic space? Yes. Ah, yes. And the the. Uh, Brown Jenkin. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. So, so uh, with this angle of masonry, he says, um, Parker slipped as the other three were plunging frenzied over the endless vistas of green crusted rock to the boat. And Johansson swears he was swallowed up by an angle of masonry, which should have not been, which should not have been there. An angle, which was acute, but behaved as it were, as if it were obtuse. Yeah. Someone tell me what that means. Is that just a jab at someone like, like you know, Phil? You you're you're um, you're an, you're acute, but you behave as if you're obtuse. Like how like, rude! I know, right? <laughs> um, no, I I think I think what he's doing or trying to do is legitimately trying to describe non-Euclidean geometry. So Euclidean geometry, if I remember correctly, encapsulates all standard three-dimensional space. So when something is non-Euclidean, it doesn't work how normal geometry works. Well, also, I think non like Euclidean is like pol- like polygons and stuff. Like no, like the no. I think I think I think non Euclidean stuff was considered like um, I, I think there was literally like a hundred years of debate about whether it was even valid mathematically. Right. Okay. I'm not a math guy. Hang on. Non-Euclidean. Non-Euclidean geometry. Four idiots. <laughs> Quick and dirty tips. What are Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry? Oh, there we go. Euclidean geometry is plane geometry. Yeah. It's talking about the way planes warp and, and change. Yeah, non-Euclidean is three-dimensional, non... The things don't have to add up to 180 degrees. Yeah. Blasphemy. So it's it's geometry that's just not standard three-dimensional space. Right. Yeah. So um, maybe maybe a, a, an angle of masonry which is acute but behaves as if it's a tube, obtuse is like... You jump across uh, like a crack that seems like it's small, but then when you jump over it, it gets bigger suddenly, and then you fall in. Well, I, I, I think it was. I think what he's doing here is intentionally using conflicting ideas to oh, try sure. and create a. Uh, you know how sometimes you can use sort of two contradictory I- ideas to create like another idea. I, I right. Think, well, I it's think, like it's like I think in, he's very uh, much trying to do that, but in this case, he's trying to he's saying, well, it's both obtuse and acute to try and imply there's a state that is neither of those things, but somehow both compli- combined, right. which you can't it, have. So and it, it it's, and it sets up like reading it, it sets up like a like some cognitive dissonance, and it makes it mm-hmm. like it's like you're you're uneasy reading it because right. it's like what, what does because that? he's literally trying to describe a, a non something you couldn't visualize three dimensionally. Yeah. So he's trying to write a, a a description of something you you can't really describe. 
you know, speaking of like contradict using contradictory terms to describe something, I like in um in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when he's describing the Vogon ship, and he says it it floated in the air much in much the same way that bricks don't. don't. <laughs> yes, yes. Um. So yeah. Um. Anyway, so burial chamber gets opened. Um. Guy gets Cthulhu swallowed up in funky out, angles. They run. Ass. Uh, Cthulhu starts chasing them. Well, he like swipes three of them away right away. He's like he's like kicking butt like right away. Right. So you know, uh, Gustav gets onto the boat, starts trying to get away, but Cthulhu, not phased by water, runs into the ocean, starts running after him, and he's like, Crap. he doesn't he doesn't run. He like. He like um, oozes into the ocean. Like yeah. The, the description of Cthulhu is really crazy because it sometimes it's like he's you know as solid and big as a mountain, and then and then yeah, he, he the can next be, time he can be he completely like, jelly like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he. But that he, that bears out because like Cthulhu is not bound by like physical, like his his form is not bound by. Like his body can be different things, I guess. Right. Yeah, because he's not—he's not bound by the normal physical laws. He's made of the stuff of the stars. He's impossibly old. Yeah. Um, apparently, though, he is not immune to having his head smashed in by a rampaging yacht, which is what Gustav and another sailor called Bridden do to get away. They—they they realize they can't outrun him. They crank the ship around. They charge straight into his forehead and basically bust his head. I think, while I think it's basically just Johansson because the other guy uh, sees Cthulhu chasing and goes mad. Did he go mad at that point? I think so. Hmm. He starts laughing. And so Johansson is like, okay, well, I'm not going to get away. Cthulhu's faster, so I may as well flip around and ram him. Yeah. And it, it works. He, he busts his skull, and while they're sailing off into the sunset, you know, Cthulhu's still trying to regenerate. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> And that's where we get the uh, the cloven sunfish line. Yeah, when he because Cthulhu pops like a balloon that's full of um, oily gas. Yeah, pretty disgusting. Here is it here. Fortunately, <laughs> Johansson turns his yacht around and rams it into the creature's head, which bursts with a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, right. only to immediately begin regenerating. I know exactly what that means. No, I don't. It's a bad description. Come on. Lovecraft use better descriptions. Maybe even maybe like he was, maybe he was even just a like fish even connoisseur. like the like the the stench of a thousand corpses that gives me a better idea of like how disgusting. I, uh, that you you is. know, like, I I used to spend uh, my my dad was a big fan of getting like meat as meat and fish as fresh as possible. So I spent a, a fair amount of time of a fair amount of time around um, a sort of fishmongers and butchers when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a very specific smell to like an actual like um, a fishmonger's. Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, it's uh, not like a butcher shop. It's not it's no not, it's it's, it's very, not like a supermarket fish counter. It's it's a very particular mm-hmm. smell. If you and ever go to uh, entirely if you pleasant. ever go to if you ever go to Seward, Alaska, it smells like fish there pretty strongly. And it's yeah. not it's not well. I mean it's unless you go right down by the water, then it gets pretty strong, but. It's not. It's it's neither unpleasant nor pleasant. It's just very fishy. So if you take that smell and multiply it by, you know, ten, that that's pretty bad. That's pretty. Because yeah. like really, really strong fish scent, like 
one time I went fishing at this river and, but it was, it was pretty late in the salmon season and the salmon were starting to die. Mm -hmm. And, um, there were like, we, we stopped in this one place intending the fish and ended up moving on because there were like 25 dead salmon on the shore and the, the smell there was like, it was like, um, I mean, I guess maybe that's as close as what, I've was ever it like come the to slashiness, the slashiness. It was, it was like, it was like a cloven sunfish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was, but no, I was thinking about like the oily. Like you said, it was oily. Like it did have an yeah. oily kind of smell. But um, com- complete, complete aside. Um, my my granddad did national service back in the UK after World War Two, mm-hmm. and after a disastrous stint as part of the Sudanese stabilization force. Um, yeah. Um, he ended up back in the UK teaching new recruits how to throw grenades. Oh, fun. And um, my grandfather, being my grandfather, um, had a box under his bed that he would palm basically a couple of grenades out because he was, he was you know, some petty officer or something and could do get away with that. And Wait, he was pawning grenades. He was palming grenades after the the, the they would because they would they would teach him with dummy grenades. They would teach him with live grenades. So he would he would at the end of class palm a grenade or so and put them in a box. Wait, a live one or a dummy one? Nope, live ones. And the and reason do, he do did what? this is he selling them. Oh no, that would be oh. way too obvious. What what he realized was there was a salmon farm next to the base, and he absolutely despised the cooking in the cafeteria. So. He went over to the salmon farm with his little box, pulled out his like five or six grenades, pulled the pins, just pitched them into the salmon farm, let the grenades do their dirty work, and then just got a boat and a net and just filled the boat with salmon that floated to the top of the water. Oh my god. He fed He fed as he as he tells his story, or told this story rather, I don't know how true it is. But he allegedly fed this base of like a two or three hundred guys for about three days the guy who owned the salmon farm was beyond furious and they had to pay him a bunch of money to stop him like creating a stink and whatever um my granddad was forced to check out and check in all of his grenades at the start and end of each (laughs) each class (laughs) wow that's what I'm saying is, I, I come from a long line of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those poor salmon. Um, apparently they tasted great. <laughs> I'm sure salmon's delicious. Um, so just have to pick out the shrapnel. Oh God, I don't even. So. Uh... So they pop Cthulhu. Oh yeah, so they pop Cthulhu. He starts re- recombining, and they're running away, and they and get they, away. And they get away, and that's that's where Johansson's script ends. He goes back to um, Amsterdam. Back in Thurston. Well, actually, not Amsterdam. Yeah. Where was it? Um, Oslo. Gothenburg. Oh no, yeah, no, no. He goes to he like gets court-martialed in in uh, New Zealand or something. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. And that's where he says that killing killing the people on the alert was a was a mercy or something. Yeah. So um, anyway, you know, broken, distraught, whatever. He ends up getting murdered. 
by... Oh, my God. By some non-white people. Let's just say non-white people and move on with our day. By a by a, by some some non-white people in a harbor. By some not not non-white people in Gothenburg docks, mm-hmm. and that's sort of where the story ends. the The only other thing of note is Thurston's like, oh, I think I know too much about this, so I'm just writing this all down for when they inevitably kill me, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where it ends. Yep. And then, and then you realize from the very beginning of the story that you have now read the entire account, and now you know as much as Thurston did, and you yourself are complicit in the. And you have seven days to get tale. somebody else to watch the video, or else that wait—that's the wrong film. No, that's <laughs> also scary, though. I don't think I've read, watched that one all the way through. Actually, I am a—I am a massive fan of the Yuan. Like the yeah. the the, the, the ring, the ring is not quite as scary as the Grudge, but oh, I love still worth still worth that, watching. Grudge is good. Have you watched the the Netflix uh, Juon Origins? No, it's pretty good. Ooh, worth a watch. Let's check that out. Um, um, so, what do you think of this story? This Which is one of my favorite. You suggested we do for Christmas. <laughs> right, Christmas is for Cthulhu. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Cthul- Christmas, Cthul- Cthulhu Photogen. Um, <laughs> this is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Um, I think this is maybe his best written story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, just like all of his other stuff, it's not it's not scary in the same way that like a jump scare is scary. This is scary in its implications and in its uh, in in its uh, atmosphere. Like, well, this this know. this is a this is a cosmic horror thing. The, right. The the scary for is more about you know your place in the function and kind of flow of everything as opposed to it being just outright scary. You know, you are a tiny little thing of no consequence, and all of this other stuff is going on. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares if you live or die. Yep. It's a very Especially existential kind of dread. Right. And um, I think my favorite part of this is probably the confrontation with Cthulhu. Because so it's it's rare in in Lovecraft stories that you get like a great old one coming out and kicking ass like they're always implied or in your dreams or Mm -hmm. driving you personally insane for some reason rarely does someone trip a switch and open a door and there's you know azathoth (laughs) walking around and well i mean the dunwich horror um right but that wasn't that was that was not yogsathoth that was the twin yeah that was that was a human old one hybrid this is right this is Cthulhu. This is, this is Cthulhu. Yeah, this is this is the precursor to a thousand years of chaos and madness, right? And and he was released by accident by a Norwegian, and and it doesn't really even say if he was defeated. Like it kind of implied that Cthulhu kind of went back into his lair to reform, but and the stars the, the stars were no longer right or something, but like. It, well, it, it seems it, it strongly implies that they, 
they ram him with a boat and no, they don't imply that. time to he, get he away, does, but yeah, right, really that's... take him out. Right. But I would suspect that because the stars are a part of him being awake, that like by the time he reformed himself, he had just had to go back to sleep again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's um, a sleepy guy that could do it. I, I, I don't Much know. like Santa Claus, you get one day, <laughs> one day, and then the rest of the year he's sleeping. And girls and boys, remember to leave your milk and cookies out, or Cthulhu will eat your soul. Right. Yeah. It's like in, in uh, ancient, uh, not ancient, but in uh, old French Noel traditions, there's two Christmas representatives. There's Pierre Noel and there's Pierre Futard. So you have Father Christmas and Father Spanker. And okay, I was trying to think what... Put, 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 uh, food, yeah, futard yeah. means to spank. Futard, yeah. um, so, Pierre Futard brings whips and puts them in the bad children's shoes for their parents to use on them. And much like that, you have Santa Claus who brings gifts for the good children, and you have Cthulhu who devours the bad children's souls. And everybody else. Wow. Um, he devours everyone. What so is it in... Is it in Arkham Horror when when if like you if you release Cthulhu it just says he devours your soul and that's the end like No, that's Azioth. Oh, that's true. If you're playing if you if you um if you play the board game Arkham Horror which um is great but you need to have it's one of those games you need to have a very dedicated group of friends to play with and um, be okay with losing. And be okay with losing because you can do absolutely everything right and still lose. Um, Much like Lovecraft stories. Yeah, you have to you have to pick a, a great old one, and if you pick normally when you when they get when they manifest and you have to fight them, if you don't manage to stop them from manifesting, um, they have some condition like they'll constantly summon monsters, or you'll you'll lose a, a certain percentage of your health every turn. Or Azeroth doesn't have uh, a, a summon conditions. If you summon Azeroth everything just becomes completely mutable space-time and nothing matters anymore and the game ends. <laughs> you have to... I, it's actually my favorite one to play because you have to stop him before he gets manifest. Um, else you lose. I think, I think the last time I played that game with you, which was a long, long time ago, but mm-hmm. the, the old one that we picked was, um, was The King in Yellow. Yep, we have the add-on. Mm-hmm. I, the problem is I didn't I didn't have um, because I didn't own that game in its entirety. I, I co-owned it with some friends, which I yeah. have it all now. But um, um, I didn't have all the add-on packs for it, and it's the first edition version. Mm-hmm. And there's a new version of it, and I don't I don't think I can get the, some of the add-on packs anymore without spending literal hundreds of dollars. I'm not prepared to put down for them, which yeah, is a little frustrating. Like but really. <laughs> The other, the other design problem with that game, every time you added another add-on pack, it just gave you another way to die, but not necessarily another way to win. <laughs> right. So Which again shadow, fits with the theme. The Shadow of Rinsmouth can seriously go and do one. Hmm. Um, so what anyway, do you think so of I was, I was, I was, I was going to say, um, f- for me with Cthul- Call of Cthulhu, I, I think Mountains of Madness is a better story. Um, hmm. I think it has the same level of polish as Call of Cthulhu, and I just think it's more interesting. I think that there's a... If I were an editor, which I'm not, 
There's a big chunk of the Mountains of Madness that I would edit out. That is a very unfair criticism. I, I don't think I would edit out anything in Call of Cthulhu. Except maybe I would counsel some word choice differences and, and Lovecraft would cuss me out for that. <laughs> Which he did. There, he called his editor the the um, the like um, dong of a, or a dung of a donkey or something like that for, for um, changing because the editor went through and changed um, changed his spelling from the English spelling of like armor and color. He, Lovecraft would write the English spelling, and he went. His editor went through and changed it to the American spelling. And because he did that, Lovecraft called him the dung of a donkey. donkey. I I get the distinct impression that old Howard was not terribly pleasant to be around. He would either be not pleasant or a riot. Yes. I mean, he had a lot of friends. Um, This is true. This is true. But, you know. Anyway. That doesn't mean you're not a dick. that, That there was our last story... For 2021. Yay! Woohoo! So, I, I, I build suspense. We've already discussed this. Mm-hmm. What is going to be our first story for 2022? Um, that's going to be the story that inspired the Hellraiser franchise of movies and comics um, called. The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Clive Barker. By Clive Barker, yes. That's his Clive name. Barker. I almost said John Carpenter, and I was like, no, no, that's the wrong guy. <laughs> that's the wrong guy. Also, also a, a, a good um, sort of horror figure. Yes. Um, yeah, The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. I will show you such delights, Damien. Show mm. you such delights. If you're talking about the delights that the Cenobites bring, I'm going to politely say no thank you. No, I was, I was, I was going to bake cookies for Christmas. Oh, yes, please do then. Yeah. Are they uh, Cenobite-shaped cookies? They are now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I, I want you to make a, uh, a video of yourself making Cenobite-shaped cookies, and we'll put it on YouTube, and we'll go viral every Halloween and make buttloads of money. Oh my god, if you could make, if you could just do a whole video series, like, um, just Cenobites doing normal day-to-day uh, <laughs> things. Uh, you, you remember years ago someone did, like, Chad Vader? Yes. And, like, Night Manager? Yeah. Do you, uh, pinhead ironing his clothes and stuff? Just pinhead in the kitchen, like, where did I put the flower? <laughs> Why do people rearrange my things? In like very full particular leather robe and things. Yes. Um, it's going to be a, a great episode because that that book, uh, it's going to have a lot of trigger warnings as well. I'm quite excited to read that one actually. That's one that's, I've kind of been meaning to track down for a while and, and actually look at. So. Oh yeah. Anyway, um, I'm Phil Allegheny. And Damien Hester. And uh, we are wishing you all a happy holidays and uh, Cthulhu for Targon. Catch you next year. If you enjoyed our show, please consider liking and subscribing. 
and maybe even recommending us to a friend. You can now follow us on Twitter via at Weird Sequence.